Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, this is Guernica from Thunder Mother, and you're listening to my favorite podcast, The Hook Rocks. Welcome back to the Hook Rocks. It is Jay Scott. It is the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Thanks for tuning in once again. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, a great network of music-related podcasts. Catch all my friends like Decibel Geek, Martin Popoff, the Rock Historian, Mistress Carrie, Tom and Zeus from Shout Out Loudcast, Vinny Apice and Carmen Apice on the Hanging and Banging Podcast, as well as many others. Don't forget Mac over there in London on the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. Something for everyone. Uh, All musical tastes are welcome on Pantheon Podcast. You can follow them on all your social media apps, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Pantheon Pods. And uh, don't forget to follow the Hook Rocks wherever you podcast as well, whether it's Spotify, Amazon, or Apple. We are available on every single platform. We've had some great episodes lately. We just interviewed Joe Satriani. We interviewed Michael Tremonte, John Conley from Seven Dust. We also have had some great new bands on the show like Band Inc. We've had Bastet from the UK. We've had Stone Broken as well and Native Sons from Louisville, Kentucky. So check all those out. Don't forget to check out our quarterly album review that we do every three months, ranking the top Rock Albums of the Quarter with my friend Chris Corradetti. You can catch that as well. A lot of contributions from the Groove Council. And my next guest, his band's album made our list for one of the top 10 albums in the first quarter in 2022. And that is Micah and the band is Fast Eddie. What's happening, man? What's going on? Hey, nothing much, man. Just ate way too much food and I'm driving back home. You're going to go into food coma? 
Uh, a little bit. I was hoping uh, it didn't interfere with my uh, energy level in this interview, but I think I think I got it under control. So. All right. All right. What did you have? Like a, was it pasta? Was it like a meat meal? What did you, what did you eat? Oh, it was poke, but it was at this place that uh, me and my lady hadn't tried yet. It's called Poke Me. So uh, it definitely hit the spot, I'd say. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, we always start the same way every time we have a first-time guest on the show. And we're approaching 400 episodes. And we wow. always do ask this question. It's the essence of the show. Just like every rock fan has a moment when they hear a song, a great song, hooks you in. Every rock fan, whether it's a band, performance, a song, or album that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? So my family was kind of raised me in rock and roll. My dad and my mom were both tied into the Austin scene in the 70s. Um, but I would say the first thing that really hooked me, which is kind of funny, when I was very young kids, my mom got me into Jethro Tull, and I became obsessed with the flute, and that was the first instrument that I learned. And I just like was this weird, dorky little kid wandering around the mountains with the flute in his hand and like blue hair and just listen to Jeff Hotel like nonstop. But um, I think that kind of like roped me in and then it just, uh, I got sucked into the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix and a bunch of punk rock that um, my brothers got into and kind of exposed me to by proxy. And then uh, that's, that was kind of the end of it for me. I just spiraled out of control and here I am today. Where, where did it go from there, from that moment you heard Jethro Tull into developing, you know, looking at concerts, wanting to be on stage? What happened next for you? Okay, well, um, my brothers were in a band when I was a kid, and they were in a punk band, and uh, they are called The Distractions. And I'm removed from them about five years, so the closest one in age to me is five years older than me. So they, I really wanted to be in their band, and they wouldn't let me, so I was a little, like spiteful and i was like well screw you i'll just start my own band and um by the time i was 12 i joined like a like a weird metallica cover band uh and then i kind of transitioned into my own punk band by the time i was like 13 14 called the classifieds and and, uh I, i wrote my first rock and roll song i think uh in that band that was freshman year of high school band called the class so um from there i guess it's just been nonstop uh songwriting and growth and exposure to all sorts of different types of music i think when i was young i was definitely more into um punk and then it kind of evolved out of that love of rock and roll and so there's there's always going to be an element of my roots and punk rock in all of my songwriting i think what are those influences? I mean, you mentioned Jethro Tull, but, you know, like... Oh, that's what, obviously not very apparent in my music, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, like, when you said Jethro Tull and I hear Fast Eddie, I'm like, man, I never would have thought... No, that. I think that that's... I mean, because your question was, what was the first thing that... Leaked, sure, like, sure, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so where, do those, yeah, where do those influences go from there? Well, um, I think what really snagged me was, like, 1960s... Um, sort of proto-punk like uh, the Stooges 
as soon as I heard the Stooges, my life kind of changed because I had a teacher who uh, <clears throat> who saw that I was into punk rock and and she is this older punk lady. I guess she used to be, you know, used to be you never were, whatever kind of joke. <laughs> so, but she told me she was like, you know, I love Billy Idol and Gen X and I love all this music, but I uh, she was like, I just really can't get into Iggy Pop. I mean, like the guy would just run around on stage and cut himself and smear peanut butter all over his body. And I was like, that sounds really cool. <laughs> and she was like, oh, I just can't get into it. And then so that kind of got me into this um, proto punk thing. And then prior to that, I had a bus driver who was an older lady that grew up punk rocking. So, and she gave me a stack of records. I had this weird relationship with this bus driver when I was in elementary school and she gave me a stack of records. And one of them was, um, it was dead Kennedy's plastic surgery disasters. And then the specials, uh, the stranglers, Susie and the Banshees and all of this other, these other like seventies punk albums. And then, um, I kind of built my influences growing up around those because I grew up in the mountains and there wasn't too much um, in the way of cultural rock and roll influence. So I kind of just like, I thought nobody else knew what any of that music was. I thought like I was like one of like 10 people in the world who knew what that was. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it's definitely just been um, an obsession, I guess, since I was a kid and it's never stopped. And it continues to grow. I'm I'm learning about new bands every day. And in terms of songwriting, you know, writing lyrics, melodies, was there a certain song or was there a certain songwriter that really connected with you? Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess that's kind of a broad question. I mean, there's there's hundreds of them, but I guess... Um, I mean, so my mom used to work with Carol King in the seventies. And I think that, you know, uh, as far as like prolific songwriters go, she's got like the master pop formula for a rock song or a soul song. Um, and my dad sort of wrote music in that same vein in the seventies. And, um, I think that I just connected more with like the songwriting element uh, than the technicality of music. And so, um, you know, I've, I've been more like apt to follow the, the line of music. That's like power pop. That's a, it's more of a well-written song that matters to me than like a technical song. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of those influences with songwriting, where do you get your inspiration? Is it geared towards more personal experience? Is it observation? Is it thinking of a character in your head or some type of um, situation that maybe you, you maybe didn't observe in person, but maybe read about? Where does all that come from for you? I think it's a mixed bag of all of the everything that you just mentioned. I mean, because some of the songs that I've written uh, were about real events and real things that happened in my life and some of them I wrote and I don't think I even knew what I was talking about until afterwards um and I think they're still kind of open to interpretation even to myself 
Uh, so I guess sometimes you don't really even know where it comes from or what you're saying until after it's written. But, um, like for instance, like the song Frankie died. I wrote that about an actual situation that happened to me when I was a kid and a person. And I'm not sure whether or not they're dead really, but it's sort of a, a sort of a vindictive, like revenge song in my head of imagining them getting their comeuppance or something, you know? How but you, the music was a means of me expressing that sort of vindictive feeling rather than, you know, actually broadcasting it to the world. But <laughs> you know what I mean? How does writing lyrics and writing songs change your perspective or does it? Um, I think that <clears throat> sometimes maybe I don't understand what I'm thinking until I write a song about it or I don't understand what the song is about until it's written. So I think that it will change your perspective because, uh, you know, like sometimes I think just hearing a thought that you have recorded and said back to you, um, can be a little bit more clarifying to yourself. It's like a conversation between yourself and, um, the other part of yourself that maybe you're not willing to converse with. And, um, and that sort of, I think if you're really tapped into songwriting, that will surface whether or not you want it to. Because I always enjoy hearing people's different perspectives, you know, because you've got you've to get into that headspace, especially when you're writing something about a personal experience that may have happened years ago, right? Because when that experience happens, it's fresh and you're in it. And then when you're removed from it for however long you are, you do gain perspective on it. You gain what happened. You gain, you know, that perspective and maybe how you should have, you know, responded to the situation or reflecting on it maybe brings up the same emotion or different emotions. How do you work your way through something like that? Man, I don't know. I think that there's, I mean, that's a pretty good question to tie into that song, Frankie Died, because... I think that was a, a situation. It was a, it was a time in my life where I was assaulted when I was a, a kid. And I've played that situation over and over and over again in my head. Um, and it was just some sort of a trauma thing that happened to me, you know? And, um, and I think writing a song created my own sort of a catharsis about reckoning with that situation and like my own sort of revenge against that person without actually executing it. So I think that like being able to write a song about it um, was something that was way more uh, healthy and um, therapeutic for me to just kind of release those emotions and kind of close the door on that nasty memory I had, you know? And I think yeah. that some can relate to it because, you know, a lot of people have been through similar situations and they feel the same way, I'm sure. But Well, when you are going through something like that and it's traumatic and you it sits with you for a long time and you get the courage to write a song about it, right? Because that's like, that's like the first step of healing is when you put it on paper or, in, in essence, talk about it or sing about it, in your case. Yeah. And, you know, it is a little bit of a of a therapeutic moment because some of that stuff is unresolved and 
talking about it, singing about it helps resolve those things and helps you put it behind you. Exactly. I mean, that, that is basically what therapy is, you know, um, being able to talk about stuff. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, you know, uh, being a person that was raised, uh, in my own way by myself to be, I guess, an outsider in my brain or an, an eccentric or somebody that was like, not necessarily able to talk about those things conventionally with my peers or with other people or, you know, feeling closed off from the world, like music kind of was my only safe haven to express those things or to get that closure or that therapy, you know, without talking to a therapist. And I've often wondered too, how a lot of musicians got past the last couple of years, musicians, artists, you know, because a lot of people write songs based on living and doing things. And that's where they get their inspiration. And some, some writers can, can just write a song. Don't need much inspiration, right? They can, they have that, they have a different way of tapping into things. Um, but a lot need to, to, to live their life and experience what's happening. And when, when you're in lockdown and when you're not doing much, how did you get through that? Was that an issue for you? Um, <clears throat> it was, and it wasn't, I mean, it was an issue in the fact that, um, honestly, I don't think I utilized the time as well as I could have to write a lot of music. And I thought that that was going to be what happened. You know, I thought I was going to just like have an endless catalog of new songs because I had like this time and this opportunity to focus on it. And, and I think in a way I started strong and then I just kind of petered off and, and uh, got kind of stuck into the monotony of the quarantine. Um, but a positive that came from that is that I did have a bunch of older songs that I hadn't yet um, recorded and that I was going to save for myself, but the band kind of talked me into using them for the album. And we actually recorded the last four songs that we put on the album during quarantine. And so we flew out to Atlanta to record. Um, and it was take a look, help me. Sunflower Bank and Frankie died. Those were the last four songs. And um, and I think those songs wouldn't have come out the same way if we didn't open up for collaboration during that time. And because that was the most special, important thing that we could do with our time at that moment it, during quarantine was to be able to record was uh, a blessing. And so I think that Honestly, I don't know what the album would look like if it didn't happen because I don't think we would have gone and recorded those songs. We were just going to release a, we were going to release like a six song, twelve um, inch EP, and those songs probably never would have made it on. Which would be it'd be a completely different album. Obviously, take a look wouldn't even be on there, so it would have a different name. So I don't know. It's amazing Let's, how that happens too. And then um, I mean, imagine working with Tuck Smith. How did that all come about? Well, I uh, I had a friend who I actually met out here in Colorado when I was like 14. And he was like a punk rock kid. And we were like, oh, you're a punk. I'm a punk. Let's go break stuff, I guess. 
uh, as, as teenagers. And we, we had met and we kind of maintained a friendship and then he moved out to Atlanta and then he started punk bands out there and then grew into rock and roll bands. And then he just became friends with Tuck and that community in Atlanta because, you know, that's the scene, the rock and roll scene out there and, um, with biters and, um, the heart attacks and, and all of that. And so he connected with that scene really young and they wound up. So Tuck produced his last EP and he let me listen to this song and I heard it and I was like, wow, this production is amazing. And I had known Tuck kind of just through the rock and roll scene prior to that, but I didn't, I, I didn't really take him that seriously. I didn't think he was that good of a producer. And then when I heard, what he did with them and the, the band was gunpowder gray. Um, and what I, what he did with one of their singles called revolver was just like unbelievable production and songwriting. And I was like, just blown away. And I was like, dude, like I have a bunch of songs I want to record. And, um, and I, and I hit tuck up and I messaged him and I was like, Hey, I'm friends with Chris. Uh, and he referred me to you for this and I, and I have all these songs and he kind of like, I showed him our first full length album and he was like, Oh, some of these are okay or whatever. And he wasn't that interested. And then he heard like, a a little like acoustic demo that Lissandra and I recorded of Milwaukee. And then, and then that's like, he like sunk his teeth into it immediately. He's like, that's a good song. <laughs> and he, that's, I think he, he flew out here after that and worked with us for like a week on pre-production. And then uh, we went and recorded our first two songs with him and Dan Dixon in Atlanta. And, um, and I think that was a really pivotal moment in our band. We grew up after that. He kind of beat the shit out of us. I call him like the Gordon Ramsay of rock and roll. Cause <laughs> he'll beat you down and build you back up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the rock scene in Georgia is really interesting because especially over the last couple of decades, it's really produced some, some great artists. You mentioned Tuck and, you know, there's gosh, Bush Walkers from, from Georgia, Blackberry Smoke. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, there's just so many bands coming out of that. And Tuck's been a huge part of it. I love Biters. Biters is one of my favorite bands. And then, you know, some of his solo stuff that he's released since then. And I know he's got a new album coming out. Looking forward to that. But, such a talented dude. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he's, um, he doesn't really ask for much in return. He's a real servant to the music and to the community. And, um, I think my very first impression of him was different than, uh, what I love about the man who is really just a servant to rock and roll in every way. And, um, he didn't really know who we were and we were coming in, uh, and he immediately opened our, up his house to us, to the, to the chagrin of his wife, you know, like we were sleeping and, and like, she didn't know who we were. He hardly knew who we were. And, um, and at that point in our lives as a band, we were a bunch of fucking nutcases, you know, <laughs> never slept. We were party animals, like, uh, just crazy people. But, you know, he, he accepted us and he also whooped us into shape. So uh, we were very fortunate. And I think that if it weren't for him kind of taking us under his wing, we would be in a very different position as a band now. 
So when do you have that moment when you're working with someone like Tuck and you realize you got the right guy? Um, it happened as soon as like, it was kind of a, I mean, the thing is, is we knew what we wanted the next record to sell Mike and we were all big fans of biters and all that and stuff. And, and the music that was coming from that studio with him and Dan Dixon and, and we were like, I know that this is the direction we want the sound to go. But what it really happened was when he just recorded his own version of Milwaukee that we had sent to him. And he recorded it on an acoustic guitar and hearing like this guy that was kind of an icon to me growing up playing an acoustic guitar with my song just on his iPhone and sent me a recording back. And then just like the things that he stripped out of it and the things that he kept and the organization and the composition of it. Like as soon as I got that back, it was like almost like brought tears to my eyes. And I was like, this is, uh, this is like definitely meant to be. That's my favorite song on the album too. I love Milwaukee. Oh, cool. Thanks. Well, I mean, it's only an hour and 10 minutes from Chicago. So, yeah. <laughs> You know, I thought it was going to be about cheese curds and uh, bratwurst, but it was actually, you know, a really good, like, kind of lost love song, right? Yeah, it, well, it's really, um, I don't know, man. People in that part of the country, Chicago and Milwaukee, are some of my favorite people in the world. Um, and it was, the song was about, I, you know, I was going through a weird, tumultuous relationship and, like, a breakup, almost breakup, pre-breakup thing. And all of these people in Milwaukee were just the most hospitable, sweetest, coolest, most generous people I've ever met. And they, we just partied for like three days straight and they just did nothing but like just drive us to get food and just took care of us. And, um, and so that's like where that song came from. And then, you know, I've just fell in love with the place and I love Chicago too. And I love, I think there's just a, just a, Something about the people from that area, they're just genuine to the point where they don't give a shit if you don't like how real they're being at all. <laughs> you know, in fact, like shit talking is kind of a love language. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if, you, if you have thin skin growing up outside of Chicago, you're, yeah. gonna, you're not going to have a good time. <laughs> well, like if somebody's really nice to you in Chicago, you should probably watch your back. Yeah, yeah, you know, but I mean, the thing about Chicago, and I and I think it's like you look at Detroit, Milwaukee, Chicago, like we're so into rock, like it's such a great yeah. rock city, and all those all three, you know, I mean, Detroit rock city is a freaking song for God's sakes, but yeah. um, but that whole like if once we once we love you, it's like yeah. we'll keep showing up, you know, like we'll oh one hundred percent, yeah. That's the most support. And we have a, we have a lot of friends and, and followers and stuff in Chicago too. And every time I go now, it just, it grows and grows. And then the people there, uh, they, you know, they're, they're, they're loyal, diehard, loyal people. So. Well, I mean, I mean, one of the, I mean, Butch Walker, who I just mentioned when he first left Marvelous three and he was doing his solo stuff, like Chicago immediately, like connected with him and he still comes like on his soul stuff. And he has like the best crowds in Chicago because back in the days when he was, you know, in that type of marvelous three type of sound into his beginning of his solo stuff, he play at places like the alley, 
in front of like 150 people and the crowds were so rowdy. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. And then, you know, Hey, I mean, all three of those areas too got really good food. So you're going to eat freaking like a King when you're, when you're in those three places. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I love it. The album to me is really interesting because, you know, when you mention kind of the punk influence that you have, and, you know, the Thin Lizzy influence is there, too, as well. Of course, yeah. It is such a perfect mesh of those two types of styles, which is really cool. I mean, it's got, like, a bit of a power pop thing, too, going. Like a like the British, like the like the T-Rex kind of stuff with the punk yeah. and the Thin Lizzy. It's, it's a very unique sound that um, kind of really pushes all three of those to the forefront. Thanks for uh, recognizing that. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you look at our first album, the our logo, like our first logo, it was actually just a joke, but people just kept using it. It was the Thin Lizzy logo, but it was just said Fast Eddie instead. I don't know if you've seen that, but mm-hmm. um, we're not shy about our influences at all. It's like, uh, if anything, it's homage. And if people say that we sound like Thin Lizzy, like that's badass. Like that's a huge compliment. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I love it when bands do that, right? I mean, they have, there's a uniqueness there with Fast Eddie, but you can hear all those elements, which is really cool. It's kind of like they put it all in a blender. You guys put it in a blender and now Fast Eddie stuff, but it. I think one of our favorite bands, like one of our favorite bands too, is Big Star. Oh, yeah. Definitely one of my favorite bands. And that's a huge, like Milwaukee could be an Alex Chilton song, you know. Um, there's a lot of, you know, Big, and Big Star kind of has that hard rock mixed with power pop and, you know, that punky attitude as well. But Yeah, I, I like that that attitude because Thin Lizzy, dead, you know, the Dead Kennedys that you talked about, even T-Rex, you know, had that attitude, just that persona when you saw old footage of their stuff. You know, it was, they wear their, they, they bear their souls with the music. And when you find that band that has that authenticity like that, it's really something special. And I think, you know, with you guys, with this album in the first quarter and, you know, in continuing on this year, I mean, what's not to love? Man, thanks, man. I'm I'm really glad that you guys found it and, and appreciate it. We didn't know really what to expect because we released, um, we released almost more than half. We released more than half the album. Um, as singles before it came out. And it was a little nerve wracking because we were kind of in a stranglehold with the pandemic because we were just going to release a single and then release an album. And then this pandemic just like, we couldn't get our records and um, it just kind of put a pause on everything and we don't want to lose any momentum. So we kept having to release another single. And some of these songs are like precious babies of mine. And then I'd release them and then nothing happened. And it was just kind of heartbreaking, but it was kind of one of those things where you just have to <clears throat> give it time to to really grow into what it's meant to be. And then when it turned into Take a Look and all of those songs, I feel like when people heard the album for the first time, they're hearing those songs for the first time as well. And so it's like the the song's got another chance to be discovered, you know? Yeah. So that, that was uh, one of those lessons in patience that I had to learn. Um, well, I ask this question a lot as well, you know, especially in the situation that we just went through the last couple of years. 
how do you stay connected to stuff that you're writing and you've finished, it's recorded, and you just sit on it? Um, I mean, it's funny because I feel like it's almost like you're in a hostage situation. Like, in a weird way, like, I'm, like, being held hostage by these songs that aren't being released. Like, um, I just went on tour in Europe with a, a band called The Whiffs from Kansas City. I don't know if you've heard of them. Mm-hmm. They're like, they're a power pop band, but they are touring on an album they released two and a half years ago. And they were supposed to tour Europe on this album two and a half years ago. And now they have a whole nother album recorded, but they can't even, you know, it's like they can't move past these songs because these people barely even got to see like this album to be promoted or anything, you know? So it's like, like, at this point, like, I think we're all really ready to move on and start writing our next album. But, you know, since it got pushed back so far, we've been playing these songs forever, but we've only toured the East Coast on this album. We're still going to have to do the West Coast. And then we're going to try to do Europe next spring. But I mean, honestly, that's still pushing. Take a look. So the amount of new content that we can promote is still very limited because you know, we're going to be playing the album and the album takes up a whole set. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Was it important uh, for you guys to be ready when things started to open up? Because, you know, I know some people, you know, some, oh, I know a lot of bands that released albums during this stuff. And like you said, now they're starting to tour and do all that stuff. There's a lot of people that held their music um, and they were kind of ready to go. And I, I kind of see Fast Eddie as, as one of those bands that was like, all right, you know, first quarter 2022. I know we've had some singles out, but you know, let's get this out. Let's get this in front of people. And then there's some bands that are still kind of spinning their wheels a little bit. Um, yeah. So what was, what was the, the, the focus for you guys when kind of planning the attack once things opened up? Well, um, I think some of it was serendipity, honestly, because um, our record had been submitted um, to the plant, the record pressing plant in Estonia. Um, fucking like, I don't know, 10 months before it was pressed like a year almost, you know? And like, so it was already like, we were just waiting and like crossing our fingers that the records even are going to actually show up because I don't know if you've heard about like that Adele record that just completely swamped the entire vinyl pressing industry. Yeah. Uh, and so it pushed all of these other like independent bands, uh, records back like 10 months. And I, and it's not just Adele, you know, it's all these like Walmart printing, you know, and like all of these big giant corporations are cashing in on the vinyl trend, but they're using these smaller plants. Uh, and so it pushed everything back. So it was like really frustrating for me to sit there and wait. And like, is this album ever going to come out? Am I ever going to just get this off of my fucking chest and into the world? Or, um, you know, it's just taking forever. And, and really honestly, it timed out perfect with our release. I got the records like, mm, I think like a week and a half before our album release show, which was our tour kickoff to go on the East coast, which was the take a look tour. So it was all about pushing this record and God, how embarrassing would it be to not have our records and (laughs) be touring on that? But, uh, you know, um, so as soon as that went out, we were like, it, it, 
it timed out with in between, you know, these variants coming back and all this shit. It just timed out perfect to where we were able to finish that whole first tour on the album. And uh, people were hungry for music and ready to go fucking go see some live music and some shows and ready to listen to new new material. And they just, you know, I think it timed out really well. And honestly, one of those things that I thought was really holding us back you know, it's kind of one of those things like patience really pays off in certain circumstances and timing is key. So for sure, you know, and, and knowing that you have good music, good tunes to play too, as well. I mean, you know, you're confident in the stuff that you're putting out. It's just a matter of when you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that was another thing that's kind of frustrating. It's like, Oh, I know I have all this, you know, up my sleeve and, um, and that, and I do feel that way about this album. <clears throat> like, I feel like working with Tuck and working with Dan, we got to explore every facet of those songs that we needed to. And everything that needed to be in those songs is in those songs and in those recordings. And, and nothing more. Because we didn't have time to get crazy post-production or anything like that. And I think it just, like... Um, I am proud of every song on the album and I'm happy with it. And that's never been said uh, by me to myself about any other album that I've ever put out in any other project. So I've never been like perfectly content with an album as I am with this one. What do you see as the difference pre COVID versus now in the crowds that are coming out to see you in rock and roll in general? Um, well, I think that, uh, I think people kind of, once you take the ball away, they, the ball becomes a little bit more important to them, you know? So I think like being stripped of something that everybody took, took for granted for so long, um, really recharged their, uh, adoration for rock and roll. I think having it taken away and, and then they're like, oh, man, I guess, like, this is really important. And um, and I need this in my life. But when we went on that tour, you know, everywhere, every show we played, it was it was really well attended. And it was places we never even played before. Or, you know, we did, I didn't know people knew, knew who we were. And people would drive from hours out of the way from different, you know, states to come see us at whatever is the closest place that we were playing. And I was just, like, mind-boggled. Like, wow, I can't believe um, I, you know, and it's, it's, that's something that's so cool is that you don't even know who's listening to you nowadays, you know, it's just out there and, um, and that shit can kind of slap you in the face. You're like, wow, I didn't realize like we have this weird pocket of fans in the middle of West Virginia that are like crazy moonshine rednecks, but they just love fast Eddie and they know all of the words to all of our songs. <laughs> it's just awesome. Yeah, it's crazy. We go out there and we play for them and they, they hire us to come way out in the middle of nowhere to their house and play and uh, they feed us moonshine all night long and just scream my lyrics and it's it's a blast. But I also think too, you know, you kind of touched on a, a little bit about taking that, that ball away, but I also think, you know, for almost two years, a lot of us were doing the same thing every day. And there's that rabbit hole effect 
too, right? When you're bored and you click on something and it's, you know, the algorithm pops up this artist and that artist, you start to go down these rabbit holes because you got nothing going on. You can't go anywhere. And I think out of every genre of music, I think rock music benefited from the pandemic the most because there was a lot more angst built up, especially in the youth. And, yeah. you know, when, what, what, what feeds angst rock music, right? What, what, or what are, where does angst feed into rock music Yeah, and that middle finger? And I think, you know, especially young kids sitting at home and, and kind of doing their thing. I think there's a, there's a lasting effect when you, when you look back and reflect on what was going on inside homes and houses and residences and, and whatever, and families, it's that rabbit hole effect, I think had a huge impact on, on rock music. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that's been hitting me too. And I've, I've been really, I, I mean, I got like Spotify for all their evils or whatever. Uh, I mean, I, I fall down in so many Spotify rabbit holes and I've learned so much amazing music since the pandemic as well. And broaden my horizons to people that are playing kind of in our same wheelhouse of music and kind of in our same community that I didn't even know about. And like, um, blowing my mind, you know, like, uh, so, I mean, like I said, for all of their evils, like Spotify is a mixed blessing and it's good for us because I mean, yeah, they, they, they take like the majority of the royalty profits or whatever from each stream and all of that shit. But the reality is though, too, like it's so much easier for people to find us. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of like give and take, you know, like, do I want to go back to the nineties where we had to do CD distribution and uh and you're just really praying to god that your distributor is good enough to get into these uh record stores and that people will see your album cover and think it looks cool and buy your cd you know like i don't know it's just so much easier with these tools that we have you know it's also too you know about fi- like you said finding music and, bu- and bands because back in the day when i was growing up everything was very localized, right? You had your national acts around MTV and all that stuff. But, you know, if there was a great Chicago band, people in New York would have no idea about this band, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was very regionalized. And, and one thing, yeah, you know, the, the streaming services, they want everything and more. But like you said, it does create an access to bands that would not normally be heard, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have an audience in Europe or wherever, if it wasn't yeah. for the accessibility. And that's one thing that's crazy to me now too, is that we, we have a growing audience in Europe and I watch like our Spotify analytics and like uh, the demographics of who's listening and where they're listening from and stuff. And it's so weird. These little spurts of places around the world. And it's like, I would have never, I mean, it, you, you couldn't have even fathomed trying to even do market analytics on, on a rock band, like in the nineties, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm something like that like you could be like oh well we sold a lot of uh, a lot of cds in england or something but like i don't know with this shit it's like i can pull up and i can see how many streams happened in the uk this week or something you know what i mean like it's it's just it's a really useful tool and i don't know i'm 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 just playing devil's advocate here on this too because i mean i have a lot of very close friends that are vehemently opposed to spotify and all of that shit and and i and i can respect that argument too but yeah i mean there's no denying the issues and there's no denying 
they take advantage of the artist. Right. That, that goes without saying, but it, there, there is something to be said about the accessibility and the coverage that you can get globally with your music. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I've talked to bands, new bands that are in your position that have gone to Austria, gone to Belgium, gone to Spain and had big crowds because these promoters in the, in, in these countries just love rock music and they do very well over there. It's amazing. Yeah. That's where I just was um, with the whiffs and I went out there and, and that was something that the whiffs are my friends. We've been friends for years and I know them as a band from KC, you know, they're like a local band. We play with them in KC and like, it's kind of like us here in Denver. Like nobody actually really comes to our shows in our hometown. <laughs> we go to her elsewhere and like people like shit tons of people show up. And then, you know, we go play with the Wiss and KC and it's like, you know, maybe 30 people or something, but I just went and, you know, filled in on guitar with them and I played Europe and their biggest audience is in Spain. We we're in Spain for 12 days and it was just every single night was sold out and everybody knew every word to every single song that they had. And, um, and that was just most of Europe. Like people are really, really dedicated to rock and roll out there. Yeah, they really yeah. their shit. What's next for you guys? I mean, you know, we're middle of May. We've got six and a half months left in 2022. What's going on with Fast Eddie? So, um, we are currently, we have a, a, a sling of shows that we're about to play um locally and then i book a festival in denver called the rocker mountain ripper fest um and we have a whole bunch of um just kind of underground punk rock and roll bands like wildlife and rambler and um riverboat gamblers and uh, a bunch of other bands on there this year and so that's kind of my big project and it's september um 9th through the 12th um and so i'm uh that's like uh and it's my festival so i'm giving my band the best slot obviously so (laughs) of course but uh so uh no so that's like a big work for us and that's a huge networking opportunity for all of these bands from around the country um and uh i think that that is you know i'm inviting bands that we've met on tour from all these other places to kind of connect with the rest of the scene um and then so we're really working towards that i think as a band as well but then after that um we will be i'm working on booking a tour for europe um this time next year so um kind of a similar run to what i just did but i was i wouldn't have been able to I wouldn't have had any clue what I was doing unless I had just gone on this European tour. So luckily now I have like uh, some contacts and I got like an idea of what to do. Europe was just a completely foreign idea to me forever. And then I got there and I'm like, all right, this isn't that scary. I got it. <laughs> what about playing other elsewhere in the States? Well, we've, we've been wanting to do a West coast tour. Cause I kind of wanted to just fin- finish off the country with this album touring on it. Uh, and that's something I can throw together pretty easily. Um, but I don't know. I mean, things are just kind of in limbo in that regard. Now, if we were to do something like that, it'd probably be in the fall, but at the moment, nothing's booked in that regard. So right now, my, my main goals, I think are to just play these local shows, um, 
work on this European tour and then start writing another album. So we already have a bunch of songs in the bag ready to start pre-production. So, and I think that's where finally, I think we've finally gotten past this hump of like pushing this record to where we can wash our hands and start writing some new songs, which is really, I think, overdue. Micah, it's been a blast talking with you, man. You as well, man. I appreciate it. It's a very, um, actually interesting questions. I keep getting the same interview over and over again. So I, I respect that. Hey, you know, um, I always like asking these type of questions and having this conversation because new bands is really what we try to do and promote on new music spotlights. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to do so with you. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for everything. All right, everyone. I'm Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks. That's Micah from Fast Eddie. Check them out at fasteddie.com, I believe is the website. Fasteddieband.com, I should say. And don't forget to check out The Hook Rocks. Take care of each other. Stay safe. We'll talk soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.